Good morning, North Church. Yeah, I want to say welcome. Glad that you're here, especially if this is maybe your first time with us. Welcome. If you were with us last week and you've come back, a special welcome to you. If you were not here last week, stay at home, watch football, got God upset. I hope you're proud of yourselves. I hope you're satisfied and you'll rethink that come this time next year. You'll notice the minute church let out, right, things started going better. Well, I'm just saying next time, can we all agree that that's how that's going down? Thank you for that. Hey, uh, we've been talking a lot here towards the beginning of this year uh, in our, this series we're calling Abide about this idea that we want to really spend the year connecting uh, in our hearts and our lives with what it is that God's doing. To spend the year in particular focused on God's word, really interacting with it, studying it growing from it. We've got a kind of an annual Bible reading plan so that along with the whole church, if you follow a plan, you end up reading through the whole Bible over the course of a year, and that's a great thing. But it's not just so that we can say, hey, I read every word in the Bible, as if that in itself is some great prize. But the idea is that along the way, we're really interacting with the things that we're reading, and we're hearing what it is that God's saying and what it is that he's teaching us. And so we've got these journals that are available out at the info center. Uh, we call them the REAP journals, and that's an acronym. The R is for read. First you read the passage for that day. The E is for explain. You kind of explain what it is that you're reading there and what captures your attention. A is for apply it. What difference does that make for the way I'm living my life day in and day out? And then P, to pray about that. And uh, we're encouraging everyone to take part in this plan together as we grow. And I told you last week as we were leaving that today's message would come from one of the readings over the course of the week. And that produced some interest. I understand some people got together, put some money into a pool to guess which passage, which day's reading I was going to choose from. So if you're holding the Tuesday ticket, you're a big winner. You can make your out, collect your winnings at the info counter. They will hook you up with that for sure. Tuesday's reading, one of them at least, came out of Matthew chapter 19, and that's where uh, we're looking today. And this is at a stage in Jesus' ministry. It's kind of late. It's right leading up to that last week of his life before going to the cross. And he's been doing a lot of teachings about like marriage and divorce and some stuff. He actually was doing some uh, teaching that was somewhat confrontive of a number of the things in his day. And right into the middle of this mix uh, walks this young guy. And he's got a question for Jesus. So we're going to pick it up in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 19. And it says, And behold, a man came up to him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And so here's this guy. He walks and says, I'm interested in eternal life. I've been listening to this stuff you've been teaching and preaching about, and I want in on that. I want to be a part of what's going on there. Um, and I want to know what's required of me. Their eternal life is out there. I want access to that. What's it going to take from me? And I don't know about you, but when I read Jesus' response, he sounds like he's a little irritated. Like, why are you bugging me with this question? Why do you call me good? Do the commandments, right? And you have to understand, uh, in part, uh, this is a young man who's come. He's, he's a, a Jew of the area who's been raised in Judaism. He knows what the pathway to eternal life looks like. He's been raised up with the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments and the law of the Old Testament and the prophets. He understands that what God calls him to is that particular life, and yet he's asking Jesus, well, what do you say that I should do? In some ways, it's kind of like the toddler, right, who says, Mom, what do I have to do to get a cookie? And she said, and Mom says, you've got to finish what's on your plate. I don't like that answer. Hey, Dad, 
Can I have a cookie? Right? Hoping the dad's just going to say, yeah, didn't like the answer that, that the toddler got at first, so they're going to try the other parent then, right? And of course, we would never do that with God. We would never do anything so, uh, so obvious as to say, God, I'm eager. Would you show me what's next in my life? Would you guide my paths and direct me into where, where you want me to go? God, would you show me what you want for me in this moment? Knowing full well that there's a whole host of things that he's already spoken to our hearts that we're not doing anything about. Now we would never do that. That's for some other churches among other congregations. We can leave that one right where it stands. The question is this. What is it, and it is specifically for, for this young man and for us, what is it that we're going to do with what God has already shown us? Are we going to try and forge ahead and not pay attention to that, or are we going to embrace it? You see, here we see Jesus affirming the Old Testament and all of its teachings, its commandments, and his instructions. And he says, look, God has already revealed to you that this is how you should live. Go do it. And Jesus, interestingly enough, he knows what's coming. He knows he's going to the cross. He knows he's going to die. He'll be raised again. He knows that there's a new covenant being formed. He knows that in just a little while, his death and his resurrection and will make it possible for him to send the Holy Spirit from heaven down to earth. And that the Holy Spirit will be available to, to dwell and live and empower those who would follow him. And he knows that that's coming. <coughs> but he doesn't tell the young man about that. He says, look, right where you are, right in where you're living right now, under the circumstances in which you find yourself, you know what God has called you to do. You know what his commandments are. Do them. The moral law embedded in the Old Testament reveals to us the kind of life that God wants us to live, and he calls the young man to that. And so, just like a, just like a good dad would say to the toddler, don't you try and pull that on me. You go back to your mom and you do what you said. In the same way, he directs the young man uh, back to the Old Testament, to the law, and to the commandments of God on the way that he ought to live. The man, in response to it, says this. It says, he says to Jesus, commandments? Which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is interesting. He starts off as the toddler who's just going to go ask the other parent, right? Now he kind of upgrades the teenager in his approach, right? So when I say to my teenage son, hey, it's time to do your chores. Chores? What are these chores of which you speak? <laughs> chores. And then you say the things we've agreed that you have to do as your contribution to our life together. Oh, which ones, he asks. Which chores? Not because he's unclear about what's included in the list of chores, but because he hopes that as I list them off, I'll skip a few and forget about them, and then he won't be responsible to do those, right? It's very clear. He understands. Now, I will say this in the young man's defense. When, when Jesus speaks of these specific commands, he's summarizing kind of the whole of all the Old Testament law, right? We, we speak of the Ten Commandments all the time, and, and they are what they are. They are a summary version of all the different commands that are contained throughout the Old Testament. Uh, growing up in the Hebrew culture of the day, the, the Jewish tradition of the day, there were 600 plus distinct individual commandments that you were responsible to follow every day of your life. And they were complex, and they ruled everything. Imagine if you, um, imagine if you got the IRS people together and said, hey, we'd like you to draw up a code for living the moral life. And imagine what they would come up with. The Old Testament law is kind of about that, kind of like that. 
difficult sometimes to read and understand, and all-encompassing in every area of life. So Jesus summarizes the entirety of it with a few of these particular commandments, uh, which we find in the Ten Commandments and others. And he says, these are the kinds of commandments, all of them. And in response to this list, the young man says this. All of these I have kept. I've kept all of these. What do I still lack? And at this point, we kind of need to separate what's going on in the heart and the mind of the young man and what's going on in the heart and in the mind of Jesus. And I want to start with the young man because he says this, what, what am I missing? And it's an interesting thought that here's a, a young man that if he's being honest says, I followed them all completely. And yet he still has somewhere in his heart, somewhere in the inner recesses of himself, he understands that no level of perfection in following the rules is actually going to produce in my heart what I'm looking for. There's that intuitive sense that following the rules and doing what's right and obeying the commandments is not what in and of itself sets me on the path for eternal life that I so desperately want. He understands that there's more. And I don't know, maybe, maybe you were there or you have been there at that place in your life before. Have you ever been at a spot where maybe you've been trying really hard? Maybe at various points along the way you said, man, I'm going to give up this habit. I'm going to give up this substance. I'm going to step aside from this relationship. I'm going to try really hard to get rid of all these um, negative things in my life. I'm going to try so hard to do what's right. And maybe you've even had some success along the way. You've, you've rid yourself of some of the baggage along the way. But there's this sense, this nagging certainty in the back of your mind that as good as I'm doing and as much success as I'm having, not producing what I'm really looking for, which is a sense of God's eternal life present with me now. This young man had that sense. He realized that all the rule following wasn't going to produce what God actually had in mind. He says there's more. There's got to be more than just following the rules. What do I still I want to step aside from the young man and focus on Jesus for a moment here in this, in this moment. Because when a young man says to Jesus, I have followed all of these commandments perfectly along the way, Jesus is really entitled to pull out the card and, so, and say, nope, red card for you. Like, you just missed the one I'm lying right there. I know you better than that. You're not that good. He, he'd have been within the realm of truthfulness to do that, right? He could have done that. Instead, he stepped aside from that. The other thing he could have done like he did in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. These are the very same commandments that he said, look, it's not enough just to obey them on the outside. These commandments actually relate to the heart. So you may be, you, maybe you qualified and you haven't killed anyone. Jesus said, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I say that if you retain anger, then you're in judgment under the law. And you may be pleased with the fact that you haven't actually committed adultery. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, but if you look on someone to lust, it's the same thing. And so he could have taken this moment to share with this young man, hey, there's a much tighter interpretation on this law than you probably think. And you may not be guilty of any of those specific actions, but I suspect that in your heart of hearts, you've been guilty of some of those attitudes uh, that he had spoken of earlier. But he doesn't go there either. It's very interesting to me. Instead, he moves past kind of the general statement that we should follow God's commandments God commands us to be sure. But he, he actually then steps away from the general and universal applies that, ev that applies to everyone. 
And he looks specifically at this young man and at his circumstances and the realities of his life. And he speaks to the reality of this person as an individual. And he says this, all right then, if you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. So let's be real clear about this. Sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. This is not a universal commandment. This is not a commandment that is um, binding on every believer everywhere. This is a commandment that's binding on this man as he looked into this, the soul of this individual. It's very personal. It's the result of Jesus knowing this man's soul and being able to identify within that soul that one thing in his life that was more important than the eternal life he said that he came asking about. He came saying, I want eternal life. What do I lack? I'm going to... I, I want to give everything to pursue this eternal life that you're talking about. And Jesus looked into his eyes and looked into his heart and was able to discern that's not entirely true. There is something in your soul to which you cling more tightly than even to your desire for eternal life. In some respect, Jesus challenges the man claim to be interested in eternal life at all, really. The guy says, I want eternal life. And Jesus says, great, if you sell everything that you have in this life, the treasure will be there for you in this eternal life that you're seeking. If that's really what you want, it won't trouble you to release your possessions now. And he looked and had to ask himself some very difficult questions about how badly he really wanted eternal life after all. So let me just stop there for a moment and ask you this about about the way that Jesus would interact with you if you were there with him in a moment like that. If he were to look deep into the interior of your soul and maybe you express, hey, I, I do want to follow Jesus. I want eternal life. I want salvation. I believe. But as he looks into the internal places of your life and, and, and looks uh, knowingly into your soul, what would he find? What would he identify as perhaps that one thing to which you cling and to which you hold even more tightly than your hope or your anticipation of eternal life. It may be possessions. It may be that that's something that you hold on to and, and, and hang on to with a tight grip, but it doesn't have to be. It can be possessions. It can be relationships. Maybe there's a relationship in your life that you know is steering you away from the path that God has for you, but it is so precious and so meaningful that you can't even imagine letting go. Christ looked into your soul, would he see that and would he challenge you on that point? I can speak to my own experience and it's this. Yes, I do want eternal life and I want to follow God and I want to please him. But you know what I cling to? I cling to this strong desire I have to control and to direct my own life. Kind of my individual autonomy whereby I get to make my decisions about what I'm going to do, how I'm going to spend my time, how I treat other people. I kind of like being in charge of all of that. And it's difficult to realize that as Christ looks into my soul, he says, you're going to have to let go of that in order to really walk along the path towards eternal life as I have called you to do. What about you? If Jesus would look into the eternal parts of your soul, what would he find? What would he challenge? What would he call you to let go of and to leave behind if you're truly interested in experiencing and encountering and living out the eternal life? salvation that he has for you. The passage goes on to tell us that when the young man heard this, 
Uh, he, went away, he went away very sorrowful. He was sad because he had great possessions. And Jesus, in response, said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. i got to tell you, this is an uncomfortable passage for me. Not because I'm so well off. That, that's not the problem here. The problem I have with this passage is this. It sounds really discriminatory. Right? It sounds prejudiced and biased against a certain group of people. Like, you could use almost any other descriptor in there, and it just wouldn't be right. Like, what if you used um, an ethnic group? It is harder for this ethnic group of people to get into heaven than others. That, I, would, ugh, I don't like that. It's it only with great difficulty that a left-handed person can get into heaven. That doesn't seem <laughs> quite fair. Why should it be harder or more difficult for one group of people to get into heaven and experience eternal life than others? It's a question that this passage requires us to ask and to answer. And here's where we land when we look at that very closely at all. We are reminded that across the scriptures, it is faith and belief that are the catalysts to an empowered relationship with God. God doesn't necessarily honor knowledge or perfection or duty or obligation or rule keeping, but it's faith and belief that are the catalysts to a fantastic relationship with God. We see it with Abraham, where God saw that Abraham believed, and he said, Abraham, you believe? I'm going to account that to you as righteousness. Like, almost in spite of whatever you're going to actually do, the fact that you believe in what I've said counts. John 3.16, a real well-known passage of Scripture, right? Tells us that Jesus came, that God sent his only son, so that those who would believe in him, those who would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. In Romans 10, we're told what? That if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says that we're saved by grace through faith. And that's not of ourselves. It's not a work that we accomplish. It's something that God does for us as a gift. All along the way, we see God's plan is really, really clear. What catalyzes a relationship with him is faith and belief. And entrance into the eternal life that this young man is asking Jesus about is only possible through that kind of belief and through that kind of faith, because faith equals trust. That is, we trust for the sake of our salvation. We, we trust in nothing other than what Jesus has done. And that means if we're going to trust in Jesus for our eternal life, we have to lay aside our claim to anything else. So some of us come from great families who have walked uh, with God for generations. We have to understand, that's not why I'm saved. That's not, where, that's not how I access eternal life. I have to let go of that as a claim and just embrace what Jesus has done. Good works. Some of us have spent a lot of our life doing good things, and, and probably the weight of the good things we've done is heavier than the weight of the other things that we've done. But to encounter eternal life and have a relationship with God, we can't rely on our good works. We have to let go of that claim and just say, I trust in what Jesus has done whether it's the sense that we have a godly or an upright character or a lot of church membership or education, none of, all of these things, we have to release our claim to those and simply trust in what Jesus has done. That is the Christian life. 
We have to come to the point where we say, I do not ultimately rely on anything else but the saving work of Jesus Christ. And this is where it does get tricky for those who are blessed with plentiful financial resources. Because we know, in this life, money can solve a lot of problems. And the problems that it can't solve, it can sometimes just hide. But all of us, rich or poor, cling very tightly to whatever in our life is capable of solving our problems and whatever in our, and whatever in our life tends to ease our pain. And it becomes very easy to get in the habit of looking to our resources to solve our prob problems rather than to looking to God to be the one who solves our problems. And pretty soon we find ourselves trusting in our money more than we trust in God. Which is ironic because on our money it says in God we trust. There's nothing inherently wrong with wealth. There's nothing inherently wrong with possessions. But there is something bent and broken in human nature and in the way that we tend to relate to our money and to our resources. You see, we begin by acquiring them and gathering them and collecting them. And once we have them, we hold them and we direct them and we control them. But slowly, but inevitably, over time, that relationship changes. And we begin to trust in these things that we've collected rather than trusting in God. Until some point along the way, we discover that we no longer hold and direct and control our resources, but in point of fact, they kind of hold us, and they kind of direct us, and they can ultimately control us. And so when we come to rely on them so much that it is difficult, almost impossible to stop, to stop trusting them and to begin trusting God, right? So we, we look to our money, not our God, to solve our problems, and we do that enough, there's this habit, and pretty soon we find that we can't let go of that for anything, even for our own salvation. We've held them so tightly, and for so long, it's difficult to let go. And the challenge that Jesus brings to this young man and that he brings to us this morning is this. It's that we can't simultaneously hold on to the things of this world and to the draw of eternal life at the same time. There comes a point where we must make a choice. There comes a point where when we come to the conclusion, I want in on the eternal life that Jesus promised, to embrace and hold on to that is going to require us to let go of something here and now. And it may be possessions or it may be something entirely else. It's frankly for this reason that the twin disciplines of tithing and generosity are so crucial in the lives of a believer. Think of tithing as, as just an advanced commitment. <coughs> Systemically, I'm going to practice giving some of these possessions away because it breaks my death grip on them and allows my grip to be open for other things. Committing in advance to give this portion of, of my income uh, to the Lord's work does that. It releases our grip. And, and kind of that's the systematic, systemic part of it. But then generosity is, is less an ongoing commitment. It's that heart that's open that says, look, my resources are not even mine to direct. They're God's to direct. So as opportunities come and, I, and I'm made aware of them, I'm going to respond to them day in and day out with a generous heart. Whether that's a particular need that's put in front of me, whether that's a food server who's working hard to serve me and I can be generous in a tip or whatever point along the way, just as I encounter opportunities to be generous with what God has given me, I respond that way. Those two disciplines, tithing, committed giving on the one hand, and responsive generosity on the other do something amazing. They turn us into people who are letting go of our stuff 
free us up to fully embrace the eternal life that God draws us to. Back to the rich young man in this story. <coughs> He's confronted with this choice between his riches and following Jesus. And sadly, he walks away back to his wealth. And in response, Jesus says to his disciples, he observed, it's only with very great difficulty that a rich person can enter into heaven. And that's because the rich have more stuff to let go of as they look to embrace eternal life. But don't misunderstand. Don't be mistaken. It's also only with great difficulty that a poor person because the poor also have to let go of whatever it is they have. Middle class, you're not exempt either. <laughs> it's only with great difficulty that we enter into heaven. You see, the particular person that Jesus is speaking to happens to be rich. And Jesus said, that's going to be hard because you're going to have to let go of some stuff. But any person of any demographic and of any background will provide Jesus the chance to say, entering heaven is going to be tough because you're going to need to let go of some things and simply trust and believe. And so it doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor or if you're healthy or if you're ill or if you're strong or if you're weak or if you're Republican or if you're Democrat. Whoever you are and wherever you're coming from, entering heaven is difficult. How difficult? Jesus said it would be easier to get a camel through the eye of a needle. It's an interesting image, right? And if you've been around Bible teachers for a while, you've probably heard all kinds of analogies and metaphors and descriptions of how this isn't really what Jesus means. Uh, he means something else. And you've heard interpretive uh, attempts to make this less impossible than it is. But can I just suggest something to you? If we want to understand what Jesus means, let's look at what was understood by the people he was speaking to, his disciples. Their response is this. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, then who can be saved? What they understood Jesus to be saying, we can tell from their response, is this is impossible. This can't be done. And that, in fact, is the very point that Jesus is making. He responds and looks at them and says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. What, what does it take to get a broken, sinful person like me or like you transform their heart, make their spirit alive, forgive their, forgive their sins, and set them on the path to eternal life? In this world and in this life, it is impossible. Like getting a camel through the eye of a needle. But Jesus says that's exactly the point. It is impossible. I think Jesus was on the verge of quoting Miracle Max from The Princess Bride. It will take a miracle. <laughs> but the Jesus who says this is himself a miracle. He's the God who inhabited humanity. He's the God who created the very laws of the universe that miracles overrule. This is a miracle that no human person on their own can accomplish. It's a miracle that only God can accomplish. And Jesus says, I am 
the miracle? Will you trust? Will you believe? And will you accept? I want to invite you to close your eyes and, and reflect for a moment. And it's possible that during the course of what I've been speaking, um, the Holy Spirit has been peering into the interior of your soul. And it may just be that, uh, that he has in these moments made you aware of something to which you are holding that's keeping you from really reaching forth and embracing the eternal life he has for you. It may be possession. It may be relationships. It may be anything. If, if God puts a specific thing in your heart, that's great. And in a moment, I'm going to ask you to pray with me uh, a prayer of commitment to release your grip. But I also know that in a group this size, there are those who maybe have never had the opportunity before and never been at the point where they're ready to say, I'm ready to believe. I'm ready to trust Jesus. I have an interest in heaven. I have an interest in this eternal life that you're talking about. I understand that I want to live a life that's no longer just about me, but which um, fulfills the very purposes for which God created me. I'm ready to say my life's no longer my own to direct I'm ready to be a follower of Jesus. And this morning can be your morning to do that. To simply step across the line of faith and say, I do believe. And I am entrusting my future and my ability to know God eternally on the good work that Jesus did on the cross by dying in my place. And we will be praying a prayer that kind of sets that emotion here in just a moment. But if that's you, you're wanting to do that and say that prayer and step across that line of faith for the very first time this morning, I would love to know that I'm praying with you and praying for you. So just super quickly, if that's you and you'd like me to pray that prayer along with you in this moment, to say yes to Jesus, would you slip your hand up in there quick and then down and I'll have a sensor there and, uh, and we'll do that space out there. Yes. Mm -hmm. Some I know are for the first time. Excellent. Others maybe are kind of renewing that commitment and that's great too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, one of the things that probably connects us in this room is we do have a sense of wanting to um, experience, experience all the promises of heaven and the joys of eternal life. God, some of us are here this morning and we've been made aware, it's been uh, really reinforced to us that uh, in order to live out the commitments we've made to follow Jesus, we need to let go of some of the things that are holding us back. We need to release our grip on some things so that we can fully embrace the eternal life God, for those of us who are, who are recognizing that right now, we just say, Lord, we release our grip in this moment. And we ask that you would give us the courage and the grace to leave those things where they stand and to direct our energies towards embracing everything it is that you're saying and, and guiding us towards. And God, for others who maybe never before have identified themselves and say, I want to follow Jesus. But today they do. These who raise their hearts and their, or their hands, and their hands represent those hearts that are ready to say yes. God, along with them, I just say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you that in doing that, you paid the price for my sins, my failures, my weaknesses, and my shortcomings. I believe, Jesus, that, that you really are the Son of God. And I believe that in the moment that you died, my sins were paid for. And I believe that in the moment that you were raised again from the dead, my, my future, my eternity was settled as God declared you with power to be the Son. So Jesus, would you forgive me for my sins? I place my faith in you. I 
place my trust in you, and this day I number myself as one of your followers. Holy Spirit, would you come and live within me this life, which is the beginning of life eternal. And God, would you strengthen me and help me to follow you all the days of my life. It's in Jesus' name that we